1: Hey, greetings and salutations, everybody, and welcome to another uh, episode of Safety Perspectives from Region 6. My name is Frank Davis, and I'm with my law partner, John Surma. And- good morning, Frank. Hey, John. Good morning. I was going to give you that that introduction in just a moment. Uh, but since we got that out of the way, let's just go right to the Jays. I've promised in our last podcast we're going to talk about some of our war stories. Uh, you know, everybody likes to hear from tales from the field and and see what other experiences other employers have had and, and and made it through and how they made it through. Today we're going to focus on the ones that we really felt like were didactic in nature that tended to teach us something of value and so we've we've kind of scheduled a, just just a handful of cases that that taught us something that taught John something or taught me something that we we thought was particularly helpful. So, John, uh, I know you've prepared a, uh, a couple of uh, tales from from your experience. You want to get us started, a little bit warmed up?
2: Sure, Frank. And, and you know, I think before we actually start the discussion, I, I think, you know, I'd like to tell the audience and share with the audience, you know, I'm very much a believer in lifetime learning. I'm also very much a believer in there's always something to learn. It might be something positive. It might be something negative out of, you know, every situation we deal with, particularly when we're dealing with OSHA. But, you know, with these, you know, we kind of have some, you know, experiences that we want to share that have kind of some targeted lessons. And, and the, the first lesson we kind of wanted to talk about was there's a, a, a general philosophy and, and we see a lot from OSHA about inexperienced workers and how accidents and incidents happen to in them in a much more frequent rate than they do with more seasoned employees. And you know, we kind of wanted to talk about the converse of that, which is, you know, sometimes when you have more experienced employees, they are safer. But there, there's kind of a tipping point where, you know, sometimes those more experienced employees, you know, take shortcuts or do things where you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you end up seeing kind of an uptick again in in the number of injuries and and incidents that they have. You know, one of my examples of this was uh, a situation I had in a plastics manufacturing facility where they did injection molding. And, you know, if any of our audience is not aware, the presses that are used in those injection molding facilities exert. Thousands of tons of pressure, not just thousands of pounds of pressure. And we had, you know, kind of a salty maintenance technician who, you know, he knew how to get the job done. And um, rather than kind of do it the slower way that would have involved, you know, a bunch of tests, a bunch of operations of the press and, you know, taking 20, 30, 40 minutes what have you, he ends up bypassing some of the guards, getting into the press and having one of his fellow techs operate the press while he's inside the press. Frank, I don't know if you can kind of see where this is going, but the results were not good. You know, basically, he caught one of his uh, shoulders in the press, lost that appendage, and uh, very nearly died um, from the loss of blood that he sustained as a result of that injury. And, you know, ultimately when it came down to talking with the employee about, you know, why was it you did that? It was, I've done this before. You know, I'm very familiar with this machine. I'm very comfortable with this. You know, I didn't see it as a problem for me to get in the machine. I just got myself out of alignment with this press. And, you know, the guy that was operating the controls rather than putting it in semi-automatic, put it in automatic mode which really threw me off. You know, it had disaster. That plan had disaster written over it in big, bold, neon letters. But, you know, for some reason, this gentleman who had been with the company a long time and had been doing this type of work basically his entire career, you know, he, he's not able to work anymore in that capacity. And, um, you know, it was all basically because, you know, he knew the machine so well And he was so comfortable doing what he's doing that he did something that (laughs) most folks would consider absolutely positively crazy.
1: I had a similar one too with a, uh, with a press like that. It was a very slow moving press because it was a, it was a, it was a CNC shop and it was, this press moved super, super, super slow. And there was this uh, intense light bulb inside of it that would burn out from time to time. uh, And uh, one of the maintenance guys had gotten in the habit of actually climbing up in it while it was moving real slowly and changing that light bulb before the, the, the pressure piece got back around to where he was working. But uh, one day he got up there and he spent too much time uh, getting the, the light bulb screwed in or it was damaged or something. And he was there alone. He had been working there for over 20 years uh, doing that same kind of thing. But uh, apparently you know, taking risks that that he didn't appreciate, uh, that others didn't appreciate. Uh, it, it, you know, lockout is there for a reason, uh, or at minimum, putting the ON-OFF switch in the OFF position, um, but that was probably an appropriate one for, for Lotto.
2: Yeah, well, and, and, you know, to your point, it's amazing how fast those slow-moving presses can go when circumstances line up against the person that's You get distracted. So. I mean, I it's
1: see. the person driving down the road, looking at their cell phone, right? You can, yeah. you, you can cover thousands of feet in seconds, uh, driving down yeah. the road. Uh, it's the same thing there. You get distracted by the work you're doing uh, up inside that situation. It's not surprising. It happens. It's terrible that it did, but it's not surprising, uh, that, that you get so focused on your work, you you lose track. And, there's no out. There's no out. There was no, nobody to save the day. I, that, that's probably another problem that we all have, right? I mean, I got so confident at one point in my life riding mountain bikes that I was taking all kinds of crazy risks. And I was t- riding this trailing Grapevine, beautiful trail, by the way, a uh, real technical trail. And uh, I went off a ledge and, um, and I thought to myself, ah, oh, this is going to be bad. I hope it doesn't mess up my bike. But I broke ribs <laughs> at the end of the fall. But the whole time, my head's saying, this could be bad. But my gut's saying, how could it be bad? You've done this a million times. And so I understand where these these experienced folks are coming from. It's just it just letting down your guard for a minute. And I, I think that that just reminds me we've got to stop and think about what we're doing. Uh, when I'm doing things around the house, even, I'm crazy overly conscious about the, uh, what's going on. You know, I go to concerts now. I take hearing protection just because I've seen some of the impacts of uh, of of what risky behavior can yield. And while I didn't expect to live to be this old, I, 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 now I want to live it healthy.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with getting old, isn't it? You decide you want to get healthy. maybe start, a start holding
1: on too tight, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, well, and, and, you know, to your point, you know, we hear all the time from employers, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a million times as well, well, we've done it this way for years. It's never caused a problem before, and they're right. It doesn't cause mm-hmm. a problem until it does, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, you know this. This is self. This is the evidence that the regulator is going to use to establish that this is a bad practice. That was the incident. You know whether it's you know the first time you do it or the ten millionth time you do it, where something doesn't go right. And yeah, that, it's yeah, unfortunate.
1: It's, it's unfortunate that it takes an uh, you know an, an injury to discover to discover a process that's not working right. Absolutely, like ride, riding a mountain bike off a off a an eight foot drop.
2: Whoops! Whoops! <laughs> <Oops. laughs> well, we, yeah, yeah. Well, we probably ought to talk about some some other examples. You know, and, and you had mentioned when we were preparing for this episode that you had a learning lesson relative to THC and how THC impacts us that you learned from one of the incidents you were involved in. Would you mind sharing that with the audience?
1: I tell you, that was a wild one. The uh, is a a 2.30 a.m. Thanksgiving morning call. And you know, when the phone rings that early on any day, you know, it's a problem. When it rings that early on Thanksgiving, you're starting to get dressed, right? As uh, as you're answering the phone call because you you know you're, you're about to head out. Uh, but this was an employee who actually fell into a piece of equipment after going out on break. And th- there were some rumors that had been smoking marijuana and that he was a marijuana user. And I know that affects different people in different ways. But this was the first time ever that I was able to actually talk to a coroner. I mean, it, it almost never happens that they'll take your call, but this one did. And she was super informative and super helpful because they did a THC study on on his blood. And, and uh, she said, yeah, the, the number was, I forget what it was now, point two or something that sounded really, really low to me. And I thought, well, how, that couldn't affect him. And what I learned from that discussion with the coroner is she said, the THC goes in on a bell curve. So uh, when you're at your highest, the number is pretty darn low. and depends on the person. And and then it, it, it the number actually increases in the blood and gets, the, the number gets bigger, you know, 20 or whatever. And she said, but there you're not feeling it anymore. It's not affecting you. And then on the way out, it gets back down to that same two or point two or whatever it happened to be. And, and again, you don't feel it there. And she said, that's the problem with trying to decide if somebody's, actually under the influence. And that's at the time, she said, that's what all the states are having trouble with with regard to regulating marijuana and marijuana use for purposes of driving under the influence is You can't tell you know, if, that, if that point two is at the beginning or the end of the cycle when you're actually under the influence. And so the coroner actually had to do some interviews to try to figure out if there was any impact. It had to interview some of the employees that it seen amusing. And, and witnessing witnessing his behaviors uh, but ever since then I've, I've always kind of taken those THc studies with a grain of salt because you really don't know unless you've you've got some observations from others that they were actually under the influence are or, or acting unusual it's it makes it a real challenging thing until there's a better test to measure whether they are under the influence
2: yeah and I mean I without getting kind of down the rabbit trail of states have legalized and, you know, kind of correspondingly prohibited drug testing for workplace slash employment purposes, you know, that's a really good point that depending upon what their actual behavior was, the presence may or may not mean a whole lot of anything. That's exactly the point, (laughs) right? Sliding into another area, another kind of thing that I wanted to talk about is, and, and I don't think You have to practice in this area very long to recognize this. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, kind of perennially run into is employers who have the impression that OSHA is kind of experts on everything and and has a real good understanding of everything. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on the compliance officer, right? Because some of them come from good backgrounds where they actually have real skill in certain areas and they really un- understand certain, certain parts of the law because that is their background. Many of them, though, come from no private sector work experience, and so they don't have any experience in a specific area. They just read it out of a book and, and tend to think that they can understand the subtleties of the work, and then they'll ask those hard questions, that don't make any dang sense if you do the work for a living or if you've been around that type of work. If they ask a bad question, then my response always is, I don't understand the question. Can you ask it a different way? What I think you see in a lot of those cases is the the person being interviewed assumes they know what they're talking about when they don't really know what they're talking about and and confuses the situation because it, it, the compliance officer starting with a false assumption on the front end that is being bolstered by answers that don't fit the context of the misunderstanding that the compliance officer started with. So when you start with bad data and add more data to it, in my experience, it doesn't make the understanding any better. Uh, I think if you get a bad question from OSHA, it's important to try to understand that, you know, whether that compliance officer knows what they're talking about, as I've seen some bad bad citations written just because the compliance officer didn't understand the, the particular industry. And to OSHA's credit, you know, most of the area directors have fixed it, but it's unfortunate that you have to go through the, the citation and sometimes a negative press release before it gets corrected through the informal conference or maybe through litigation. And so, Employers would be well advised to be thoughtful about how they answer questions that don't make sense to them, because we get a lot of questions from compliance officers that don't make sense in the context of the industry. I think you had a a specific one that you were
2: thinking about, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, well, and and, and before I get to those comments, I'll just say this, which is, you know, a lot of times I think employers forget that today that compliance officers on a construction site talking about, you know, some sort of excavation or some sort of fall protection issue and tomorrow they're in a hospital dealing with some infection control issue and the next day they're in you know some sort of manufacturing facility talking about machine guarding or lockout tagout issue and so you know they have a lot of experiences or or, let me start that statement over again they have a little bit of experience in a lot of industries oftentimes but in terms of real expertise it's it's pretty limited in a lot of cases because you're absolutely right I mean, there's no way they could know every industry. The situation that I wanted to talk about was a situation where this particular compliance officer, um, make a long story short, they had had a number of jobs over the years, didn't have, you know, kind of, um, you know, heavy duty industry experience or construction experience. It was, you know, various and sundry, you know, jobs, generally speaking, short term jobs, found this out in the course of a deposition found out that you know five six years before our inspection they went to work for a government agency unrelated to osha um, in a uh, administrative type capacity transferred to another city took a position with osha because government employees are oftentimes allowed to kind of move around in government agencies without the same sort of effort it would take to, to you know for an outsider to get into a government position Was in an administrative role there, moved into another sort of more formal administrative role. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, at various times, OSHA has difficulty filling positions and was approached by the area's office management about, you know, would you be willing or would you be interested in becoming a compliance officer? And before this compliance officer even was sent to OTI, the OSHA Technical Institute in Chicago, the assignment for my particular inspection landed on their desk and they're going out to an inspection in this case a fatality inspection with literally zero experience behind them i I think there were a couple of other inspections kind of you know what we characterize as more minor inspections or what i think we would characterize as more minor inspections Um, but in terms of you know, the type of equipment that was involved in terms of a fatality, et cetera, this was the first time. And, you know, they really, really struggled. And, you know, in going through the file, we found some conclusions that, you know, the way they were drafted up and, you know, people, when they write notes, sometimes emphasize things. And, you know, we were able to, uh, I'll use the word exploit that. To our advantage in that case, and, and you know, a more experienced, more senior, more trained compliance officer, I'm confident that never would have been in your file. It was one of those things where you know I think we sometimes expect or, or think that you know the compliance officers all show up with 20 years experience. Well, guess what? They, like everybody else, has to start with zero years experience, zero days of experience in some cases.
1: I heard a stat recently that they've, they've got 50% new enforcement staff.
2: I've heard that same stat.
1: That's less than a year's worth of experience.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, people are asking all the time, do you know, this compliance officer, do you know that compliance officer? And Fortunately, this is the
1: first time in a long time that I haven't known all the compliance officers because they lost so many over COVID uh, no, that, that there's a bunch of new ones that the names start coming up. Yeah.
2: It's hard to keep track of. Them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a in a few months, I figure we'll know everybody in region six again, but they really added a whole bunch of new folks.
2: Well, it depends on if the turnover can replace. Yeah, yeah, that better word than I was coming up with. But yeah, it depends on what happens there.
1: Well, you're going to use fancy words, but I'm from West Texas. I got to use things I understand.
2: Hey, you're the one that came up with didactic. I can't even <laughs> say it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that was my English major popping out right there. I, I remember, uh, remember that word, school. I guess uh, th- just a closing note. It kind of goes back to, to to our thoughts about being thoughtful. You know, the end of shift problem or or the going to lunch issue around break times and around end of shift. You know, I, it seems like we see a, a higher percentage of issues around that time. I just had a recent case with um, they had a um, a warehouse that was that was stacked tall and and some of these stacks stacked tall weren't so straight up and down, weren't blocked, weren't blocked. They were, they were leaning and had a fella getting close to the end of shift, just trying to get the last of his workload out, runs over with a pallet jack and starts cranking and cranking and cranking. The, the, the whole stack fell on him all on video, but you know, he only had a few minutes left in the shift and Uh, Maybe 15 minutes left in his shift and he was trying to to get it done instead of waiting on the forklifts to clear off some of the pallets on top of what he was really trying to get to. I get getting in a hurry and trying to go home. I I get that. Uh, I think sometimes people hurry up. That's something that I would... I would emphasize in in training and retraining and maybe briefings, right? Just reminding people, kind of circling back to what we did at the beginning. Even with more experienced employees, there's no need to to take unnecessary risks. And th- those are things that I often see our HSE partners emphasizing uh, to operations and to employees: is like slow down. We want you to to go home the way you came in. This collapsing. Uh, pallet case drove that home again recently
2: yeah and, and i mean look there there's i'm confident statistical evidence that demonstrates that you know that 30 minutes 15 minutes whatever prior to the end of shift prior to break time prior to lunch time you know there, there's there's i'm confident there's data that shows that there's an uptick there but you know and, and you and I have seen this in multiple cases, and we've talked about it in multiple cases. And there, there's one that will stick in my head forever. It was a, a fella, 25, 26. And, it, you know, he was using a reach truck, and he was uh, manipulating merchandise, you know, basically getting it out of tall storage racks and, and putting it on the, the, the uh, dolly that was on the reach truck and, and moving it to other parts of the facility or putting it on trucks. And, you know, for whatever reason, rather than dropping the boom down to 45 feet, repositioning the truck and going back up, which was a feature unique to some of these trucks in this facility and not all of them, that most of them you could operate it from up in the air. You know, he decided, well, you know, I'm close to where I'm at, or we we assume he decided I'm close to where I'm at, and I'm going to just remove my fall protection to unhook this lanyard and got into the pallets and, and apparently lost mindfulness of where he was. And, and unfortunately, you know, when it came up to break time, an hour and a half later, people finally started to look for him. And, you know, unfortunately in that hour and a half, he had expired and, and, and passed away. And, you know, I mean, we're we're drawing some conclusions because there was no video and we don't really know what happened, but it appears that he got in a rush and, and, and just unhooked himself and, um, you know, no idea why the rush, you know, in terms of the progress through his inventory that he was supposed to work with, you know, he was on track, he was on time, uh, but for some reason or another, you know, it appears that he took a shortcut. And unfortunately, those shortcuts, whether it's on the employer side or the employee side, can have catastrophic results. And, you know, unfortunately, you and I have seen that far too often over the years. And yeah. I continue to see it.
1: Yeah, it is unfortunate. The only other thing I would add is whenever we're given that instruction, whenever HSC is given that instruction, reminding people to pay attention, I always like to document those type of things, of course, that we're, we're emphasizing the safety points uh, and then the corrective action. Uh, like we've talked about many times before, uh, inspect, detect, and correct. Go around and, and try to make sure people are following, following the procedures. Uh, and if you catch them doing it right, fantastic you know you can make a note of that and if you if you catch an opportunity for improvement uh obviously make a note of that so i think that concludes our podcast for today John well thanks again for listening and John it's good to talk to you talk to you next time
2: sounds good Frank you'd be good